Welcome back to Everything is Public Health. I'm MJ. And I'm Cass. We are both pet owners. Uh, I'm more recently so. So therefore, I fortunately haven't had much interaction with taking my cat Clementine to the vet yet, but I'm sure you have many experience taking your pets to the vet. Oh, I have so many, so many stories. My cat got some weird thing and like all of her teeth were falling out. And so we had to take her to the vet dentist. And so like she had to have all of her teeth removed, which was really traumatic. I don't know that I've ever talked about, I've talked about Penny, I think on the show, but I don't know that I've ever talked about Magnus, who was our, our little buddy who had a neuromuscular issue. And so he only made it to 18 months, which was really sad. Rest in peace. He was so cute. Yeah, he was very cute. If anyone could see the picture, her pets are very cute. And obviously we worry about the well-being of our pets, right? That's sort of what being a pet owner is all about. But have you ever worried about you getting your dog Penny sick or vice versa, your dog Penny getting you sick? Yes. Okay. Only because, (laughs) only because there was, well, I knew this before from getting a master's in environmental and occupational health. Like we think a lot about how we interact with our environment, et cetera. But very recently, the health behavior or health communication students did a whole campaign about how you can get sick from your dog and you can get your dog sick kind of thing and making sure to wash your hands. Oh, so it's a recent thing. Oh, yes. This was in the fourth term of the last academic year. So between March and May of 2022, they were talking about this. And then they sent a survey around asking if people saw different things. So yeah, you're very well aware. (laughs) Recently was hearing about this. Yeah. Yeah. But I think that's not on the minds of most people. I think we often forget that we share the world with animals, plants and we're super conceited. Yes. (laughs) Animals, plants and nature and humans are very egocentric, like you said, and we are we think we are destined to be here and then everything else is an accessory. Oh, that's a really good way to say it. I like that. Yeah, like we think we are the chosen ones and everything else is just like <laughs> accessory to, to humans, which is how we treat the world. I probably shouldn't say this, but it's not surprising that humans tend to be egocentric and conceited. We have the tenets of many religions that say, you know, we were chosen and destined to rule the world. Rule the world's not quite the right phrase, but, you know, we were made in the image of some deity. And so, you know, we were were meant to be here. So it's not surprising that it carries forward. We were meant to populate the earth. Yes, popu- that's a much better way to say it than <laughs> to rule the world. But anyway. But indirectly, that's what happened. But yeah, so the health of animals directly affects our health. And I'm not talking about things like, oh, the ecosystem or habitat destruction or like food poisoning or stuff like that. But like directly, the health of our animals can directly affect our health in that it can get us sick, namely infectious disease. Sure. I mean, think about all the flus we have that are named after an animal. Yeah. The bird flu, swine flu. I mean, there's hypotheses that COVID was potentially from a bat. I don't know. Maybe it's not a bat, but certainly there is some reason to believe that a live animal market was somehow contributing to the source. So we, you know, we get things from animals and we can pass them back. It happens. Yeah. And that's sort of the main theory. The live animal market theory is sort of the main theory right now. I don't know what the current discourse is on COVID origins, but you know, that's not touched out right now. Well, we solved COVID, right? We don't have to think (laughs) about COVID anymore. (laughs) Oh, boy. Sorry. It's okay. (laughs) All about my inside words coming to be outside words today. No, that's okay. That's what this podcast is for. So disease jumping from animals to human is what we'll focus on today. And this concept is called spillover. The answer is actually really complex and long, but I will try to 
do it justice in maybe just a short answer. This is Dr. Megan Davis. Hi, everyone. I'm Dr. Megan Davis. I'm actually a veterinarian by training and was a former large animal veterinarian in my early career before I got some additional training in public health, environmental health, infectious disease, and epidemiology. And so now I am associate professor and doctoral program director in the Department of Environmental Health and Engineering at Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. So we're extremely lucky to have her on the show to explain today's topic. We're going to take a slight step back to talk about the overarching principle or the field of study called One Health before jumping back to spillover. Now, there are some terms that I have never heard of before grad school, and One Health is one of them. Like prior to grad school, prior to Hopkins, I have no idea what One Health is. I didn't even know that concept existed. Do you know what One Health is? What would be your definition? Sure. So I have the privilege of being part of the Johns Hopkins Education and Research Center, which is funded by the National Institute for Occupational Safety and Health. And so I get to interact with Dr. Megan Davis and sort of understand the interactions and the implications that the health of all things have for not just the well-being of us, but for our impacts on the well-being of other animals. And so my understanding of One Health is really like we need to be thinking about how the species with whom we interact or with which we interact can impact our wellness and we impact their wellness. And so really thinking about this more holistically. Yeah, exactly. And that's sort of what One Health is all about. So let's have Dr. Megan Davis, the expert on this topic, explain to us. Way better than I can. (laughs) What One Health is. So One Health is the interface of human health, animal health, and environmental health. But I will say that we have been really growing and evolving the definition of One health in recent years, as you might expect, given that the COVID-19 pandemic is zoonotic in origin, meaning it's a disease that comes out of an animal source and is now able to be spread among the human population and cause a lot of disease. In terms of what this has done to the way we look at One Health, I think it has even broadened our already very holistic approach even further. We've always been a discipline, so to speak, that is transdisciplinary, meaning that we bring lots of different kinds of people together and we work together on problems. And what's changed is there is now, I think, increasing realization, even among One Health experts, that there are big issues that One Health is particularly suited to address. Obviously, pandemics are one and climate change is another. So we sort of alluded to this theme a few times in season one, right? Because we live in the environment, the health of the environment directly impacts our health. Right. We've talked in prior episodes about air quality or air pollution, plastics leaking into the ocean, either plastic bottles or the component parts that make up plastics, straws, etc. And then the the fish, biomagnification of fish. <laughs> You're doing the baby shark. People can't see, <laughs> but I have a smaller fish eating a larger fish in my hands. One of these days, we just need to like take a little video clip and post it on Instagram like as a teaser. I need to work out how that works. But anyway, so animals are part of our environment as well, right? So even more so now because we eat animals and therefore domesticate and raise them en masse 
in close proximity. And there's so many things that we can talk about just with that topic. Oh, yeah. Something we'll talk about in a future episode is how all of these animals caged up often in close quarters can lead to infections and then the overuse of antibiotics and antibiotic resistance. Oh, yes. We're not exaggerating when we say they're kind of like a breeding ground for new diseases. CAFOs, right? Concentrated animal farming operations. Maybe. Isn't that what they... I learned all about those in my master's program, but it's been a long time. Pretty sure it's CAFOs, C-A-F-O, Concentrated Animal Farming Operation. I'm pretty sure. Yeah, but they are, you know, if you have animals that are that close together that aren't meant to be that close together, they are quite literally petri dishes in many ways. When we think about spillover, we often have this like really colonialist view of like, oh, this happens in Africa, this happens in Asia. The first is that when we think about spillover, that is the emergence of novel viruses or other pathogens out of typically wild animal reservoirs, this actually happens all the time. And it happens all across the world. It's not just something that you see in Asia or just something that you see in Africa. We have had spillover events in the United States. It's like COVID was like a, a one-time freak example of a spillover event. But do you remember like in into the 2000s, we cycle through like a different type of animal flu every few years? Oh, yeah. Well, I mentioned earlier yeah, you did. bird flu, swine flu, etc. But then we have other kinds of zoonotic pieces like Ebola, Zika, you know, there are a lot. Those are all animal-based. Yeah. In fact, most human diseases is zoonic or zoonotic. I don't know how to pronounce it. How would you pronounce it? Well, now I can't say it because you've said it. (laughs) (laughs) I messed it up for you. (laughs) And now I can't remember how to say it the right way. Zoonotic. Okay. So, in fact, most human disease is zoonotic, meaning they're animal in origin. And in retrospect, we have no excuses of being blindsided by COVID because we have so many warnings. It's just that those viruses never exploded, but COVID was the one that did, in which a lot of people in One Health definitely anticipated. When we are looking at the frequency of these, I think those of us who do this kind of work have long recognized that a large pandemic was perhaps inevitable, but we didn't know exactly what and we didn't know exactly when. I think an important difference between COVID and other prior zoonotic diseases is the the R-naught was very different for COVID. It was much more contagious. Do you want to explain R-naught? Yeah, so R-naught is sort of for every experience exposed person or every 10 exposed people, how many people will they expose? And so if something is greater than one, it means that they're going to expose more people than are sick currently. And if it's less than one, then you will expose fewer people or infect fewer people and then it's likely to die out. So for example, if it's you know 1.3, if there were 10 people sick, they would infect 13 people. So I'm pretty sure I got that right. But for some of the other zoonotic diseases, they were far more severe. Not saying that COVID for some folks wasn't really terrible and that people didn't die from it. But for some of these other zoonotic diseases, it is really, really severe and really high fatality, but it is less contagious than COVID was. And so we didn't see the same kind of widespread outbreak that we saw with COVID. Yeah, are not essentially what you said, except that you said 10 people, but it's just like any people. Well, I was using 10 as an example because it was easier to think about if an R naught is 1.3, it's 13. 10 people infect 13 people. It's harder to say like one person in like 1.3. Well, how, yeah. Like one person infects 0.3. But you're right. That's what R naught is. And 
One Health is such a deep and rich field that we'll definitely be returning to it in the future. For now, I want to focus on the direct applicability and potential for One Health. So how can we use One Health principle to address things like spillover? What are some of the major problems of today that we should pay more attention to? You mean besides the pandemic and spillover, which are obviously gigantic and deserve a lot of investment. If we think about fragmentation of the landscape and destruction of ecosystem services and loss of habitat causing increased migration of wild animal populations or increased stress or both, and this can occur under anthropogenic change, anthropogenic meaning humans are causing the change, and therefore they've kind of moved that interface back into an area that had previously been preserved, those are points where we have high concern of spillover because we haven't been in those places before. We don't know. We haven't been exposed to the animals that have been there. The animals that have been there may or may not have been exposed to humans. And so this can be a novel connection. And so that's one place where we think about high potential for spillover. It's not the only place. Exotic animals that are brought in either to be farmed or are brought into markets. So this is the concept of wet markets. And in these conditions, you can have, again, a lot of stress in the animals and a lot of mixing of animals in ways that they had not previously come together and had connection. We are doing a lot to have genetic surveillance of SARS-CoV-2 variants, right? So that we recognize when we have new variants coming out. And a lot of this has focused on sequencing of human strains, but we've not done as much in the way of active seeking of viruses that might be circulating in animals, whether these would be the dogs and cats who incidentally get it from their owners, or the real concern now with white-tailed deer, and there certainly seems to be the potential for this to be spreading from one deer to the next. The concern would be if the virus would mutate, then we would have a deer variant. Then we might see that in places where deer and humans come into contact, such as my own backyard, (laughs) that you could have a spillback event, meaning coming back out of animals into people when it started in people and went into the animals. There was a very large project called PREDICT that was designed to go out and really investigate what viruses and other pathogens were circulating in these wild animal reservoirs. And therefore, when we had an event, we could then go back into this library of what we had identified and be able to understand much more quickly more about what it was, where it came from, and what the likely pathways of transmission would be. This project operated over about a 10-year period and actually was just ending as the pandemic began. You mean we should pay attention to things (laughs) and do surveillance so that we can monitor what's happening so that we can be prepared and then use that data to guide not just our current (laughs) response, but to be prepared for future pandemics? Yes. I just realized (laughs) this may be the first time we talked about surveillance and monitoring. Like It's a super important part of public health, but I think this might be the first time we mentioned surveillance and monitoring like explicitly. I think explicitly. We definitely have talked about surveillance before and being able to track pieces and, and thinking about data, but I don't know that we've ever really explicitly called out what it is. And I certainly don't think we've talked about monitoring and sort of how you use that surveillance data to keep track of things to figure out what we should be doing and what we need to watch out for. Yeah. Like I think it's such a cool concept of 
monitoring the animal population. And she also mentioned this piece about monitoring uh, waste, like wastewater. And the CDC just released an interesting report on their wastewater epidemiology efforts. So this is where we're looking into human sewage systems and grabbing virus. We're either doing virus detection or sometimes we're actually trying to grow the virus, but more often we're just trying to detect it and look at the genetic code. And in these cases, they have identified what are called cryptic variants. These are variants that haven't necessarily already been identified in people. And then the question is, where are these coming from? Are they coming from people? Are they coming from one of the hypotheses is rats? Are they coming from some other source? And so really digging in here, I think, would be worth the investment. And you might be thinking, I was like, okay, spillover happens, and it seems to be an unavoidable thing. But that is not the case. It might not be perfectly preventable, but there are steps that we can take to prevent spillovers from happening, especially in our food system where we have so many animals gathered in such a close space. Dr. Megan Davis talked about protecting those workers because those workers are the contact between animals and then the rest of the population. We're in Baltimore right now and on the eastern shore, we have an extremely dense broiler poultry production area. And yes, that's where you have a lot of seasonal workers potentially or other vulnerable workers, you know, vulnerable either because of immigration status, socioeconomic status, other kinds of lack of access to healthcare, lack of access to other services. And when you have these workers in conditions where they don't have a lot of autonomy to be able to advocate for safety or knowledge to know what to advocate for. If your workers are coming back, then you are investing in them and you're investing in your own future. If your workers are itinerant, then neither you nor they have any particular investment in that relationship. Then, yes, it can be a big concern. And in this, we have obviously the risks of exposure to zoonotic disease or to diseases that we'll just say are equal opportunity, right? They don't necessarily only come from animals to people. They can also come from people to animals and back to people. And the influenzas are a big one here. We've looked at methicillin resistance. Staph aureus and multi-drug resistant staph aureus within the hog workers. And there are other emergent pathogens that we do worry about. There are other kinds of exposures. A lot of times on these facilities are other chemicals in use. We think about pesticides probably the most. And then you have just the other physical and toxicant exposures that are typical in animal production areas. These are areas that have a lot of organic material, a lot of dust in the air. And so what we've seen is that a lot of people who have worked in this for a long time may start to have respiratory problems. In addition, injury is a big deal in agriculture. And it's true at the production side. It's also really true on the processing side, you know, where people are handling knives and they're working on often very, very fast lines where they have specific tasks to do as each carcass moves through. And so as a result, really paying close attention to maybe slowing line speeds and doing things for safety reasons, not just for productivity reasons, would be really important. Obviously, uh, this is going to be a theme in the show, but because we live in a capitalistic society, uh, protecting workers has not traditionally been the profitable thing to do and therefore not a priority. Yeah, that's all I have to say. Yeah, no, I think that I have nothing to add. <laughs> 
As Dr. Davis discussed, the interaction and interplay and exposures between our environment and humans has important implications for our health and well-being overall. Mm -hmm. We need to be thinking about how we are protecting our food sources, our water sources. We need to think about how we're protecting the workers that are interacting and doing the work of helping us produce the food that helps you know keep us all alive. But I think it's really important that we are focused holistically, this one health concept is really about understanding how we fit into the larger ecosystem as opposed to continuing to focus on us as sort of the center of the universe. Yes, we will definitely be returning to this wonderful topic of One Health in more episodes in the future. You have reached the end of the main segment. The rest is more uh, related chit-chat and discussion. This episode is brought to you by shopping local at farmers markets near you. Yes, support local farming and local food chains. <laughs> local food supply chains. Food chain would imply that we're eating the people. <laughs> anyway, they contribute to the food supply. Yes. So have you been to the Museum of Natural History in D.C.? Oh, sure. But it's been a really long time. Oh, when's the last time you've been? Like 10 years, maybe. Okay, so it's been a while. Do you remember any exhibits that was there while you were there or has it been that just that long? Uh, I It's been so long. <laughs> I don't even know. Yeah, I've been to aquariums a few times <laughs> recently, but no, I have. It's been so, so long. Yeah. So I went to the Museum of Natural History, I think sometime last year or maybe beginning of this year. So a few months ago. And I was so stoked that they had an entire section on One Health, like an entire wing. Oh, cool. Dedicated to One Health. And I was like, wow, this is like something I learned in school and something I want to I want to do an episode on. But they did this entire section, which I thought was wonderful. And I think they did it because it was so appropriate to COVID. Sure. Because COVID being, like you said, right now, the main theory is the live animal market theory. And they want to do this because of COVID. But I also think that they don't want to make it like COVID themed. So they actually didn't talk about COVID too much, but they did a whole spread about like all the diseases in the past that came from animals. So we mentioned like swine food, avian flu, Bolo and Zika. And then one of the things I remembered very clearly was that they said these animals were never meant to be this close together because in nature, things, you know, sort of spread out. Like the pigs don't really communicate with the chicken that much in in nature. The pigs are with the pigs in this area of the forest, kind of like a fairy tale. And then the chicken are in that area in the forest. But yeah, like I can't help but reflect on just how much we have messed up the, the natural order of things and therefore created a bunch of problems that we created ourselves. Oh, sure. I mean, even thinking about like the produce that we demand is available to us year round. So we grow it in places where it grows and then ship it across the world to come to us. Or, you know, we eat things out of season and, you know, we're just, we're doing all sorts of things that can muck up the natural order. Yeah. We did an episode about food deserts and I recently came across this other term, not a food desert, but like a food source desert in a sense that do you live in a place where everything that you eat is shipped from like 10,000 miles away? 
Oh, like Iceland. Yeah, it's like some places like that, and there are places in America too where like everything you eat might be from a million miles away. Yeah, but Iceland, this, everything's really expensive in Iceland because they don't have a lot of opportunity to produce things. A lot of stuff has to come over water. Yeah, and I think right now the war in Ukraine is also showing like how fragile the supply. Like there are places where if their ship or their port were to suddenly not function, they they might just have no food. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, I don't know where I was going with this, but yes, if you have time, go visit the Museum of Natural History in D.C. They have this wonderful wing about One Health and how it's important to care for animal health because it also directly impacts our health. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Everything is Public Health. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe and spread the word so more and more people can learn about the awesomeness of public health. Remember that the midterm is upon us. It's a, a rapidly approaching. So make sure that you are registered to vote and go vote. New episodes are released every Thursday on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please give us a rating and a review wherever you listen to your podcast. It helps the show immensely. Send us questions or comments to everythingispublichealth at gmail.com. Reach out if you think we missed an important perspective or suggest a future episode topic. Follow us on Twitter at everythingisph or Instagram at everythingispublichealth. You can also find me on Twitter at Dr. Krafasi. If you want to support the podcast directly, we have a Patreon page. You can find the link in the episode description below. And remember, everything is public health. Everything is public health. There's a really interesting example called dancing cat disease that was kind of traces back to Japan back in the 1950s when the um, Esso Corporation had been working on, you know, production of acetaldehyde and had a byproduct that was methylmercury. So this is a neurotoxic chemical that was discharged into Minamata Bay and it bioaccumulated in the fish. And so the fishermen went out and they were catching the fish and cats would hang out on the docks and they there was a fish that was maybe not great and the fishermen were not going to give it to people. They threw it for the cats. And so actually in advance of any disease in people, you started to see neurologic disease in the cats. And that's why they were called dancing cats because they had problems with their um, mobility. They couldn't move in the right way.